<laughs> when in doubt, poke it with a stick. <laughs> Now, if that's not enough of a hook to make you listen to this episode alone, then you're absolutely mad. What does that even mean? If in doubt, poke it with a stick. You will soon find out. Happy New Year, if it's not too late to say it. I hope you had a good one. We're going to go straight into this episode of the Good Sports Podcast, and we're talking ultra-endurance cycling, a sport which has grown in popularity in the last decade, with events like the Trans Am Bike Race in America, and events like Land's Enter John O'Groats in the UK, becoming more recognisable names outside of the niche cycling fraternity. But what compels someone to take on these gruelling adventures where you cycle thousands of kilometres in just a matter of days? And what are the challenges and what are the dangers of doing these types of events? Well, ultra-endurance cyclist Laura Scott can answer some of those questions and more. So, without further ado, this is The Good Sports Podcast with me, your host, Luke DaCosta, and ultra-endurance cyclist Laura Scott. I'm originally from the UK, but grew up in Canada, so that's why I have this accent. Um, but moved back to London about 11 years ago and... I've been riding bikes uh, for about six now. Nice. Great stuff. Laura, okay then. So an ultra-endurance cyclist. What does that exactly mean then? So I mainly cycle on the road, but I tend to do really long distance uh, rides and races. Um, So the longest I've ever done in one go was 620 kilometres in about 26 hours. And that was from the bottom of Wales to the top of Wales and back again. So through um, the Beacons and over Snowden. So it's a tough ride, but that was sort of one of my favorite rides I've ever done. Um, and then I've taken part in a number of ultra endurance races, which are self-supported races. So you have to carry everything you might need, your food, any repair kit. You usually go quite lightweight, so only one pair of clothes. And they're over usually a couple of days. So the longest one I took part in was the Transamerica which is from Oregon to Virginia. And um, that was 4,500 miles. And I I didn't quite finish that one because I was hit by a car. But then most recently, I took part in another race in Ireland, which was 2,500 kilometers. I can't wait to get to that Transamerica story hit by a car which i've got <laughs> which i've got down here on my list of questions for a bit later i mean do you have to be um i mean does one have to cycle a certain distance to be able to call yourself an ultra endurance cyclist um i mean obviously you've racked up some serious miles in events there but is there a a kind of um you know a certain distance which would make one an ultra endurance cyclist because some some cycling events nowadays or stages on 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 tour events can be really long in themselves can't they yeah, it's true. Um, and I think a lot of the sportives and sort of single day mass participation events are going that way. And, and I think a lot of people kind of enjoy this beat of how far can I push myself in a single day? Um, it's a tough one. I've kind of debated this a lot. For me, anything over 100 miles is an endurance event. And everybody's endurance, obviously, is different levels. Um, so... For me, I think if you want to call yourself an endurance cyclist, go ahead. (laughs) And I think, uh, Laura, uh, before we dive into uh, the the world of cycling and how you got into it, I think, you know, it's only right that we start at the beginning by talking about um, those early years in Canada, uh, where it sounds like you you really got a thirst for the outdoors and, and that kind of adventurous lifestyle. Yeah, absolutely. So... Um, 
my parents were Canadian and we grew up in the UK. And so I think part of that was they really wanted to share with my siblings and I the sort of stereotypical Canadian upbringing. And so every summer, my siblings and I would go to summer camp in the middle of Algonquin Park, which is one of the big provincial parks in Ontario. And we would go canoeing and backpacking for, um, you know, two or three weeks at a time and just sort of (laughs) pre-cell phone days. So you would, you know, meet me at this spot in two weeks. And if we're not there, then send the park ranger to look for us. Um, And so from quite a young age, I think from about nine years old, I was out in the woods um, camping and hiking and canoeing from lake to lake. So that was really how I spent most of my summers. It's still something I miss all the time now. I, I just love being outside and camping and exploring. And I think in northern Canada as well, you can go for weeks without seeing anybody. And so you are really in the remote wilderness and it's quite a freeing, exciting experience. And and that's what you enjoyed the most about it, that kind of getting away and kind of really into nature. Because, I mean, growing up as a youngster, I mean, a lot of kids probably wouldn't like that. You know what I mean? Camping, going out into the woods and stuff. But you really kind of got into it. Yeah, I think it's a funny one because we there's there's other I mean, there's loads of different kinds of summer camps. And we used to make fun of the camps where you had electricity, (laughs) which I mean, that's sort of, you know, probably what more people are used to. But we all really enjoyed, you know. If you need to wash your hair, you just put some shampoo in and jumped in the lake. Um, So it was a bit more rustic. And I think that was something that my parents kind of wanted us to experience. You're growing up um, in the city and not having that sort of direct access to nature as much. Now, looking back on it, it's definitely been something that's kind of stuck with me because I I think there's not really anywhere in the world I feel like I can't figure out what to do or how to, you know, survive i guess so from canada over to the uk uh and is that when your love for cycling began when you arrived over here so yeah when i came um when i moved back in uh, when was it uh 28 um 2008 sorry i came back to do my master's at goldsmiths university and as most students can relate i didn't really have much money and so taking the tube everywhere was a little out of my budget and so i picked up a a sort of cheap commuter bike. I think I paid 80 pounds for it. And it's it sounds silly now, but I just fell in love with commuting in London and cycling to work. And I think it's when I fell in love with the city because I suddenly was able to find all these routes and connect the city in my mind in a way that you don't really get if you're taking public transport all the time and discover new places and, and just, you know, get a sense of the community and, and what London's all about. And so I sort of commuted in London for a few years. And then eventually a friend invited me to do a charity ride from Paris to London. And it was for a literacy charity. And I was like, yeah, sure, I could do that. No problem. And so I didn't really have much concept of what riding 100 kilometers would be like and not doing it for three days in a row. And it was definitely, definitely out of my comfort zone. So I and I didn't have a bike with gears at that point. So I bought my first road bike off eBay um, and you know it was the wrong size for me and was I had no idea what I was doing and basically at the time I was living in Angel rode it to Old Street put it on a truck to go to Paris picked it up the next day in Paris and had to learn how to use gears uh, for the first time and so it was definitely sort of throwing myself into the fire with that one but that's really when I fell in love with cycling and 
I think the idea of, you know, that you can go really far on a bike and you can see the world and cycle across countries. It is totally liberating, isn't it? I mean, I, I, I've ridden a road bike for not not long, maybe the same as you, really, for maybe about like five, six years now. But I, I went out on a mountain bike the other week for the first time in about two decades. Um, and that was amazing because mm. those things can literally go anywhere and through through anything it, it did feel like i was cycling uphill the whole time and through you know kind of like treacle but it was brilliant cycling really can be, can be liberating can't it yeah and i think it just makes you slow down a little bit you know you take in things in a way that you wouldn't if you were in a car or um public transport and you know it's sort of it's freeing in the sense that you can get yourself anywhere that you want to go and and you see things at a pace that you don't normally get the chance to. I mean, I think I, I mean, I was out cycling in Essex this weekend and I always pass this one road. And this weekend I was like, I was on my own and I was like, I'm going to see what's down that road. And it was beautiful. And it's just that sort of being able to happen upon things and you know, on your own time on your own speed. And it's quite a freeing thing to be able to do. Okay, then. So Paris to London on your first ever road bike as a complete rookie. When did you start really thinking to yourself then? hey, I want to do more of these. I'm going to get a better bike and I'm going to try and make a bit more of a living, uh, you know, from this type of thing. When did it become something you really channeled a bit more energy into? So after that, I I mean, I was immediately hooked and immediately looking for how do I get more involved in cycling and what are the opportunities? And I was quite fortunate because a friend of mine was working for um, the company Rafa, which is a cycling apparel brand. And so I had a sort of infinite resources at my disposal to sort of find out about odd axes and races and and what sort of goals I should be looking to hit as a cyclist. And and so that was incredible because it just meant I kind of got taken under under their wing and, and showed the ropes. And so it was, I think, probably about two years, three years after that, that I started to eye up some of the ultra endurance races. So I entered my first race in 2016, which was the Transamerica. And we should say that, um, I mean, these ultra endurance events can be can be a number of things, 24 hour races, long multiple day events where you ride across countries, states, counties, uh, uh, racking up the like of 4,000 kilometers and more like we're probably going to talk about in, in just any second. But what compelled you to even take part in this madness? <laughs> So I initially sort of found out about these races. I was following this group online and I and they were organizing a race called the Transcontinental, um, which is which was run by my call. But it was the first year of it. It was in collaboration with another group. And I had already followed them on social. So that was how I sort of first heard about these races and was really intrigued by it. I actually emailed to see about entering and then realized it was maybe a little above my ability at that time. (laughs) But I sort of it was what kind of got the idea in my head of, of doing this kind of thing and reached out to a number of people who were doing these races already and um a guy called Mike Hall and another woman called Emily Chapel, and spoke to them both a little bit about it. And I kind of, I don't know when the idea exactly got set, but it, I remember I was sitting um, in Canada with my parents and I think I must've pulled a face and my mom asked me, she's like, what's that about? And I was like, I think I've just done something really stupid. And she's like, what have you done now? Um, and I was like, I've just signed up to do this race called the Trans Am next year. 
and and my parents were really supportive of it but it was quite funny because it's you could tell immediately my mom's like oh not again <laughs> oh no Just, what have you what have you got yourself into type of thing and and laura you say that you know at this point you even thought to yourself oh this might be a bit above my own ability what kind of ability mm. skill set on the bike endurance you know did you have at this point at that point um i had ridden 200 miles in one go but that was kind of an accident to be honest i had been doing uh, an event and didn't realize i wouldn't be able to take the train home afterwards uh with my bike so i ended up cycling back the next day uh which i should probably be clear that it wasn't an easy 200 miles it was probably one of the toughest rides i've ever done in my life and i think there is a more than one occasion where I got off my bike and just lied on the side of the road and almost in tears eating Skittles and <laughs> trying to recover. <laughs> Talk about learning the hard way, going the distance. Yeah, I hadn't really known what bonking was at that point and I hadn't got my nutrition right, hadn't hydrated properly. I just had no clue what I was doing. So I did absolutely everything wrong and it was it, I, I suffered for it. But I, I knew I could do that distance and... I think that was kind of, I'm one of those people that's like, if you can ride 200 miles, you can ride 400 miles. Like, I kind of have that attitude towards a lot of things. Um, it's just about learning how to pace yourself and getting your food right and, and your nutrition. So I knew that the distances I wanted to ride were above my ability, but I knew that I could also get myself there if I just focused and put the training in. So I got um, a little bit obsessed with, with my training at that point. And with cycling, uh, I think I was doing four to five days a week of 100 miles a day. 100 miles a day is, is a lot of legwork. And, and were you still studying at this point, Laura? Or were you uh, back home and, and working was, or what? I was working at this point. So I'm self-employed and freelance. And so I was working part-time and then a lot of really early mornings. Uh, I'd get up and ride for about two hours before work and then often after work for another two hours. Damn, that's a lot, and and I think just to go just to go back a little bit, we should explain for the podcast list podcast listeners who might not know, bonking uh, basically means like hitting the wall in running. Would that be fair? Yeah, that's exactly it. Great stuff. Okay, cool. So you're putting up a hundred miles a day, you're putting some serious effort in. Great attitude. I love your approach to this uh, Trans Am bike race across America. So over four thousand kilometers, unsupported uh, cycling. Y- your first big one, and and you took it on, and uh, well, it didn't go quite to plan on day one, did it? It didn't, no. So on day one, I was about just over 50 miles in on the first day, and it was quite a busy day and um, much better weather than usual for that time of year. So everyone was on their way to the beach, and so traffic was quite heavy. And unfortunately, a a car pulled out in front of me um, at a T-junction, and they thought they had time to go in front of me. And so I went into the car as they came across the road. I fractured my collarbone and dislocated my shoulder and had a few stitches in my arm as well. But it was America, and so the medical center I went to was quite small and because I was in the middle of absolutely nowhere. And so they didn't have anyone who could read my x-rays at the time. There was no technician on until the following, uh, I think, the Monday or Tuesday. And so I had kind of figured in my mind, if it was obviously broken, they would know, um, like anybody would be able to see if it was broken. Um, I hadn't really considered that fractures aren't always <laughs> completely visible. Um, they told me to rest and to, they gave me a sling and I 
decided that I was going to keep riding because I think at that point I put so much time into training and so much dedication into trying to get myself to a point where I could be competitive in this event that I just after 50 miles I really wasn't ready to go home and, and call it quits next day managed to get a lift with some uh we call them uh road angels so people who kind of just find you out of nowhere and come and help you so they had seen on instagram that i had been hit by a car and they messaged me and asked me if i needed any help so they came and picked me up uh, drove from portland to the coast which is about three hours and then drove me into portland so i could get my bike fixed get a new wheel and then drove me back out to the space in the race where I had um, finished before I'd gotten an ambulance and then started riding again the next evening. So I lost about a day-ish, maybe a day and a half to try and organize everything and then kept riding. So at that point, I knew I was no longer necessarily really racing it, but I, I kind of in my mind was telling myself that I was doing a fast tour. So touring is usually when you might ride like 50K a day um with your tent and you know sort of at a more leisurely pace and I sort of told myself I was on the fast tour where you know, I was going to try and do 100 miles a day. How did you respond when that happened? I mean you'd put so much effort into training you were really determined and then that happens. I mean was it hard to pick yourself up and get going again just 24 hours later? I think I didn't really give myself time to think about it and I think the adrenaline and the you know months of training and you know, you kind of run through all the worst case scenarios in your mind. And it sounds naive, but being hit just really wasn't one of the scenarios that I had thought about. Um, you know, I ride all the time. I ride every day in London. And I have for about 10 years now and, you know, not really had any problems. And so it just kind of wasn't something that I thought was going to be the thing that made me have to stop. And so I never really gave myself any time to sit and think about it. It was just almost survival, fight or flight kind of mode where it was, what do I need to do to keep going? And so, I mean, within, I think it was like eight hours of being hit, I was in Portland getting a new wheel. Unbelievable. I mean, I, I love the determination. It's incredible. I, I think I'd be, would have been a broken man in more ways than one. I'm not sure if I'd be able to get back in the saddle, to be honest, but I mean, I'll tell you what, looking at the rest of the race, I mean, I, re I read an interesting article, um, I think which you'd, you'd written about the race. And, uh, you know, when you did continue, you were passing through a mountainous region of Wyoming, if I'm correct. And, and there was another bit of a, a bit of a kind of a heart in the mouth moment when you saw some um, some warning signs about some rather big animals. <laughs> yeah, so it was um, just after Yellowstone Park, actually. And so I'd come out of Yellowstone and I knew that there wasn't going to be anywhere for me to get food for quite a while, but there was a, a big climb that I was going to have to do. And there was a sort of trailer camp at the bottom of it. So I pulled in to get as much food as I could uh, carry with me. Um, so that I would be able, I think there was something like a hundred miles to the next place I'd be able to buy food. And the guys at the, the sort of store like, where are you heading tonight? And I was like, oh, just up to the top of the mountain. And they kind of like, are you sure you want to do that? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. Like, I'm good. Um, and you kind of get people who they obviously think you're a little bit crazy cycling by yourself and worried about <laughs> where you're going to end up and where you're going to sleep. And you kind of, you know, most people are genuinely concerned and want to help you out and, you know, offer you a bed or whatever. And so I kind of assumed that was what was going on. And so I you know, said thank you and then just went on my way about halfway up this climb a sign appears and around a bend and it says beware stay in your car bears in the road ahead 
<laughs> I had that sinking moment where my pockets are absolutely jammed full of food and I'm on a bike going five kilometers an hour up this hill <laughs> and just thinking to myself, great, what do I do if a bear comes? And so I had a sort of contingency plan in my mind that I was going to throw a jar of peanut butter at the bears and then turn around and cycle downhill as fast as I could if I saw them. <laughs> That is unbelievable. I, I throw a jar of peanut butter at a bear. I, I mean, car. I mean, it, it would go through your mind, wouldn't it? I mean, I'd be flipping out a pen knife or something. Not that it would do anything, but I mean, what an adventure! Just it just sounds mad. But when we start talking about, um, you know, y- your journey into the world of uh, ultra cycling, I mean, how did you kind of navigate your way through learning about races and and talking to the right people? I mean, you mentioned earlier you spoke to a few people to get advice before a, a big event. I mean, did you find it an, an easy mm-hmm. and open community to to um, kind of like get information from? Yeah, it was a fantastic community. And it still really is. Um, I think it's one of those weird niche sports that everyone who does it really wants more people to do it. <laughs> and so um, everyone who sort of participates in these events is so happy to sit down with anyone who wants to do it and, and share advice and tips. Um, there's so many blogs out there about you know, what people pack and how people do their route planning and, you know, the essentials to take. And so there is, there's a wealth of information available to you. Um, But I just emailed people and contacted them through Facebook and Twitter. And everybody always was really keen to, you know, share their advice and their thoughts and help me out. And I think now that I'm in that position, I've done a few races and I get quite a few messages from people through social media and an email as well, just asking for tips and, you know, always happy to give people some advice or share what I've learned so far. Cause I think it is one of those sports that, you know, there is an incredible community about around it. And that's sort of half the reason I love it. Absolutely. I mean, you've been on some incredible uh, adventures already, really. I mean, and it doesn't seem like you've really been doing it for, for really that longer time. And what do you, Laura, what do you get out of it? What do you enjoy about it all? I think there's something really maybe addictive about learning how far you can push yourself um, and understanding where your limits are. I think if you had asked me, you know, even six years ago, if I thought I would be doing the things I'm doing now, I would have said there's absolutely no way. And it's quite exciting to see actually, no, I am capable of a lot. And I know I'm capable of more than I've already done as well. And it's sort of, it's something that you can take through to your everyday life. You know, when I find myself in challenging situations, I now know like I've been through some ridiculous situations. I know I can make it through this as well. Um, Which is just a sort of, it's a nice thing and a nice feeling to be able to have. And it just, I feel like since I've started to do this, my self-confidence has gone up. My appreciation for the world around me and for sports has just completely changed. And so it's, it has been an incredible experience and, one that's definitely changed my life for the better. And you mentioned a minute ago, uh, ridiculous moments, I think, was, was the word you used. I mean, uh, can you um, can you describe a time when one of your, your long kind of adventures went a bit wrong, went a bit pear-shaped? <laughs> um, I mean, it's one of those things, there's always so many ups and downs in these races because you are pushing yourself to your physical limits. And so even just emotionally, you have very like distinct highs and lows. It's not necessarily, it wasn't necessarily a bad moment, but I did a race this previous June um, in Ireland called the Transatlantic Way, 
which is it follows the coast of Ireland along the transatlantic um, route that goes around. And it's, you know, absolutely spectacular scenery. But there was one moment where it was a Friday night. It was just getting dark and there was the tail end of a hurricane coming through. So being on the coast, you're just being absolutely battered by it. And the wind was coming through the sort of crack in uh, cliff face that I had to get up. And it was too strong towards me, though, so I couldn't ride my bike. And so I had decided I was going to hike up or walk up my, with my bike because it was so windy and wet. My shoes, because um, I was wearing cycling shoes, I couldn't actually sort of grip to the road. So I ended up taking my shoes and socks off. And so it was a Friday night around nine o'clock at night. And I'm walking up this mountain in my bare feet and uh, tail end of a hurricane pushing my bike. Um, and the, the wind was so strong that it literally felt like I was being blown backwards. I, I've recorded a little video at the top of the mountain. You can't hear a word I'm saying. You can just hear the wind um, and see everything kind of blowing past me. Um, it was one of those moments where I sort of got to the top, sat down, had a little breather, had a snack and you sort of wonder what you're doing there. You know, you know, everyone else that you're friends with is probably at the pub having a pint warm and not, you know, in their bare feet on the middle of, in the middle of nowhere on a mountain. It sounds absolutely bananas. I'm not sure if I'd cope with that. Did you ever fear for your life? Have you, have you ever feared for your life on one of these big adventures? No, I think on the Trans Am after I got hit, I was obviously a little bit jumpy um, with cars just because, you know, I just been hit so I think when any cars came by it just I was a little nervous um but it wasn't that I wasn't safe it was just nerves and adrenaline more than anything you know one of the biggest things I've learned on these adventures is that people are I think we always kind of assume the worst with people and when you're out doing these things and you're kind of vulnerable people are so kind and generous and they just want to see you succeed and they want to help you and it's it's really an incredible way to see a, a country or a place and meet the people and yeah I've never once felt unsafe on any event that's really good to hear because you you know something at the back of your mind you know i mean I'm probably quite irrational, to be honest, but, you know, I always think to myself, on these one of these amazingly long rides, say if it was across the States or something, you always think to yourself, hmm, we've all seen that film, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You know, you wonder if something <laughs> might, you know, go terribly wrong, a bit like that. But it's great to hear that you feel so confident and that there is, I think as you described it in an article I read, um, you know, a real kindness of strangers out there. Yes, definitely. And I think there's things that will you know, challenge your perceptions, especially in America where um, you're not used to seeing people with guns, for example, and you're, you're cycling through these very, very small towns and there's people who have guns and sort of holsters that they're walking around carrying. And it's, it's a bit sort of surreal to see because you do feel like you're in the wild west. But, you know, even they are more than keen to help you, offer you food and whatever you might need. So it's, it is a kind of funny thing because it does force you to sort of reevaluate your sort of stereotypes and biases that you have. I love that. And now, Laura, you also took uh, part in the ride across Britain, Land's End to John O'Groats, uh, 969 miles, I think, if I'm correct. And um, I think you did it the same year uh, as one of my work colleagues, actually. Terrible conditions, really bad, really bad weather. Um, and it seems like, to me, it's an event that's getting a bit more mainstream, bringing that ultra cycling into the mainstream. I mean, what do you think about it? Is it, is it more open to the average type of person? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely 
want not to downplay the challenge that it is because it is a huge challenge and it's a massive accomplishment for anybody who does it. I kind of, I've joked a few times to people that it's kind of the glamping version of what I do purely because they sort of supply your food along the route and it was so amazing to kind of get to your destination at night and have your tent set up for you. You literally just grabbed your stuff and went and, you know, tumbled into your tent, fell asleep, passed out. (laughs) So it was kind of a nice bit refreshing because I'm used to having to sort of deal with everything and carry everything, um, trying to find food in gas stations. So having, you know, proper meal cooked for you was, was a real luxury for me. But I think it's great that these events are, are popping up and more and more people are doing them because it is, it's nice to be able to share that with more people and have more people see what it's like to you know, cycle across a whole country. And Laura, you speak of snacks and meals at, uh, at these types of events, and you're a vegan. What are, the, um, what are a couple of good kind of vegan snacks that you can take on a bike with you then? My go-to at the moment is the banana serving. Um, the malt loaf, the banana one's vegan and it's great and it kind of squishes down nicely in your pocket. <laughs> but I, I'm a really big believer of just trying to take as much real food as you can. Um, I avoid a lot of the energy bars or the sort of um, sports nutrition stuff that you can find out there. I sort of think anywhere you can have like nuts or fruit or vegetables, it's, it's so much better. Or, you know, take a sandwich with you. It's more enjoyable than, you know, than trying to eat something that's just basically sugar but yeah so I think for me like my main foods I take are bananas saurine um flapjacks kind of I I have a sweet too so anything that's cookie based is is good I thought I'm a hundred percent with you on those um whole and real food snacks for uh during events I did a half Ironman a couple of years ago and I had gels and I had other things like some little cookies and some sweets but I reached for the gels I was going so well on the bike massive mistake on the run not only did I bonk big time but I had to do a number of toilet stops and kind of ruined the race for me I blame it on the gels um yeah yeah one of the hard things with gels is that once you start taking them you need to keep taking them to like stay topped up whereas real food your body's used to digesting it and you know you don't need to top up as frequently because you're you're getting more of the nutrients that you need in, in one go so it is definitely my preferred method yeah absolutely agree uh what would you say what would be your top tips for anyone who wanted to get into a bit of cycling who was eyeing up maybe paris to london next year or in a couple of years time um i mean when i was first getting into it i i joined a club i joined islington cycle um islington cycle club and they were fantastic they have all kinds of rides for different abilities they do sort of park laps in regent's park on saturdays just to kind of get you more confident on the bike and riding in a group and then different um paced rides on a sunday so you know if you want to go and be as fast as you can there's a ride for that and if you just want to go slow there's a ride for that too and that was a fantastic way of just building up my confidence. And then I personally entered a lot of sportives um, and mass participation events. I was really nervous about riding with groups at first because I didn't want to slow everyone down. Um, and so that was sort of how I built up my confidence was I just entered a load of events by myself, didn't tell anyone I was doing it. Once I sort of realized that, hey, you know, I'm holding, I'm holding up my pace with everyone else. And that's when I joined the club because it was, I sort of, admitted to myself that I was probably not going to be left behind and it would be okay I'd be able to keep up great stuff really good advice and it's all about just being bold and excited and getting out there and you know kind of chasing it isn't it I totally agree 
Um, cool. Good stuff. I'll tell you what. Right, Laura. So main part of the interview is done. So now what we do on the podcast at the end of all our interviews is a bit of a fun little quiz. It's like kind of a quick fire icebreaker quiz. Do you know what I mean? But at the end, if, yeah. <laughs> if that makes sense. Um, Sounds perfect. Cool. OK. Um, OK, Laura. So if you woke up tomorrow as an animal, what animal would you be? A whale. And if you could go anywhere on this planet with your belongings to live, where would you go? Amsterdam. What's the item you can't live without and you can't say your bike? Camera. What's the longest word that you know? Onomatopoeia. What's that? It's a word that sounds like a word. Really impressed. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) Laura, do you think aliens are real? Yes. If you're hosting a dinner party, anyone can come along, dead or alive. Who are your top three people around the dinner table with you? Oh, good one. Um... Oh, that's a tricky one. <laughs> I know, my brain's just gone completely. I think I'm like, it's still very post-Christmas <laughs> We'll come back to that one at the end and we'll give you a bit of more thinking okay. time in between. Um, most essential bit of kit, Laura, on your long rides? Garmin. Favourite film or book? Um, the People of Paper, which is a book. Would you prefer to visit Earth in 2100 or travel back in time to 1900? Uh, the future. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Flying bikes and all that kind of stuff. Who knows what there would be yeah. on the road. <laughs> uh, okay, last question then. Uh, best advice you've ever had? <laughs> when in doubt, poke it with a stick. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not even sure what that really even means. If I, I guess if there's something... <laughs> it just always makes me laugh. <laughs> that is brilliant. Okay, any more thought to the uh, three special VIP guests at your super dinner? No, I don't know why that one stumped me so much. Wow, that really has stumped you. That's a first on the Good Sports podcast. Great stuff. (laughs) Laura, thank you so much for being a good sport. It's been really good to talk to you. Uh, And best of luck with everything for the rest of this year and beyond. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Laura Scott, ultra endurance cyclist there on the Good Sports podcast. And I should probably say she didn't encounter any big bears or any other wild creatures on that jaunt on the Trans Am race. Uh, so she got to keep her tub of peanut butter on that occasion. What an amazing adventure uh, that sounds like. A terrific insight, a terrific lady. Uh, and Laura has some big news coming in the spring this year too. So keep an eye out on her social media accounts to see what she's up to. Uh, and check them out anyway for some amazing photos from her epic trips. It's well worth it. Okay, that's another episode down. Lots more great guests to come in 2019. And if you like what you hear, please do give us a review and comment on iTunes. It literally takes two minutes and it gives a shout out uh, to all those great athletes who are trying to uh, shine a spotlight on too. That's what it's all about. Uh, Give us a shout out on social media. We don't have a Twitter handle right now, but you can find me uh, at NewsLukeDC and you can tag me there. Uh, And if you don't like what you hear, feel free to let me know what's bugging you uh, and keep your suggestions coming for any interviews you'd like to hear as well. Until next time.